All right, welcome back to another exciting edition of the Pointless Exercise Podcast. And uh, I have, I was going to say you're the first guest to come back, but you're not. You're actually the second guest that I roped in for a second time. So uh, Bruce Miles, longtime Cubs reporter, uh, is with me now. And we can talk about uh, if baseball's coming back. Of course, neither one of us have any idea. But if they do, how they're going to do it. So Bruce, how are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, you can only take so many runs and walks through your lovely, lovely subdivisions before you're driving yourself nuts, but uh, doing the best we can through all this. Yeah, good. So, baseball's been out now for almost two months, if my math is right. Yeah, March 11th or 12th, yeah. yeah. And so not quite two months, but a long time. And so first, the first glimmer of hope was the thought that they would just have all 30 teams hang out in the greater Phoenix, Scottsdale, Metroplex, whatever they call it down there, use the existing spring training facilities, um, plus Chase Field, whatever the Bob, I think that's it, the Bob is Chase Field now, um, yeah. try to play that way. And there'd be, they even talked about doing some seven inning double headers, like the low minor leagues and stuff like that. Then we got the idea that, okay, the Florida teams aren't crazy about that, and the state of Florida wants to reopen. So let's just use the Cactus Leagues and the Cactus League and the Grapefruit League, and those will become the American and National League for a year and just play one whole season in Florida and one in Arizona and then the, do the playoffs somewhere, and then those two teams would meet. Then somehow Texas bigfooted their way into it, and it was never really clear who would get sent to Texas other than the Astros and the Rangers. But that's when they had the three division proposal, which would be irrespective of leagues uh, and would put the Cubs in one that had like the White Sox and the Cardinals and the Royals and the twins and the Tigers and, and whoever else. And so then according to, uh, Trevor Plouffe <laughs> put on Twitter the other day, and then Jeff Passan has found some somebody in the sounds like in baseball, maybe the Players Association, maybe both, has said that what Trevor had leaked might actually be true, and that's spring training resumes on on or around June 10th. Opening day is say July 1st, and then they play in the actual ballparks. Um, so I guess we could kind of start with that one. It seems to be the the plan that um, makes, well, none of it makes a whole lot of sense, but the one that seems most workable. Um, so you you were a, your first year covering baseball, um, covering the Cubs, you told me off air as kind of a fill-in was, was 95. That was the year that was the 144 game season because of the strike and was I'm trying to think of, they started just a few weeks late, maybe two weeks late. And this, so they crammed 144 yeah. games in. Was that one where they, they didn't have as many off days as normal, or is that why they cut it down to 144 games? Do you remember? No, that's why that's why they cut it down to 144 games. They started like what they, they if you remember they started spring training with the replacement players, 
And actually, those replacement players got on planes at the end of spring training and went to the cities where the teams were supposed to open. And then all of a sudden, here you have the settlement, and now they had to re-ramp up spring training. And uh, the, the Cubs, I'm looking here, started on April 26th. So it was, you know, a, 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 not quite a month late, but three or four weeks late. But they had to ramp up and, and do a whole kind of a crash course in spring training, you know, which is what they're going to have to do here. But uh, And I think they carried like 28-man rosters for like the first month of the season. So I remember that um, spring training that year, the second spring training, the one with the real spring training, must have been about four weeks because I remember Jim Riggleman saying that he thought that was the proper, that's what spring training should be every year that this six or seven or eight week spring training was excessive. And we know the reason that they have it is they've started to make a lot of money off those spring training games. And so they don't want to give those up. Um, No, Riggleman hated spring training. First of all, you know, he thought exactly, you're exactly right on that. He thought four weeks was enough. You know, the pitchers, everybody was ready for that time, but yeah, you, we all know why it's as long as it is. Yeah. That's so. Especially now that they've all, well, some teams have pumped their own money into their spring training facilities. Um, others have convinced an Indian tribe to build one for them. Not, not, to, <laughs> yeah. name, not to name any names. Um, so they have a special incentive to, to have extra games. Did Do you remember, did anybody in 95 come back particularly out of shape? <laughs> Because my first thought was, I'll bet Jamie Navarro did. But I looked, and Jamie had a really good year. He was like 14-6 and six with a three ERA. So I don't think he did. I think uh, it, it's, we're talking about another team here, but I think the entire Chicago White Sox team did. You remember, <laughs> they had the best record in 94. Yeah. They won They won the, the West in 93. They came back in 95 and got off to a horrendous start. I think they had John Cruck on the team and guys like that. And then Gene Lamont got fired at the end of May. You know, simply because the team wasn't ready. I think the entire Sox team was out of shape. And I think the Cubs, I think, were okay at that point. They actually got out to a nice start and were in first place by Memorial Day. Yeah, that was the crazy year where they they had the great start, and then they were basically out of it late, but then they wouldn't lose. Like they're they were based they were right about to be eliminated from the wild card game, and then they won like eight of their last ten games. I think they won eight in a row, then lost the last couple. And so it was this, yeah, and then this, that's you know that stretch where the guy ran out of the stands to attack Randy Myers. I was at that game in '95, filling in for Barry Rosner, and you know that's the goof who had to sign. You know it's going to happen. The same guy that uh, attacked the guy who was skilled in martial arts, and we had hand grenades in his locker. That was uh, John Murray and our good friend. Yeah, I don't uh, remember his name. Yeah, our good friend uh, Mike Bratt from Higher Gymnasium ended up having way too long a conversation one day <laughs> at a Cove convention with John Murray. Um, yeah. But all that happened, yeah, down the stretch in 95. Well, for whatever reason, you know, Marquis has nothing to show. And so, but, so they've been doing, the, they did these theme weeks. They did 70s week and 80s week and 90s week. Well, they ran out of weeks. And this is mystery week and where you don't know what game you're going to get when you tune in. And this is, well, last night was only Wednesday, and this week they'd already had two games from 95. In one of them, they lost. <laughs> like, why are you showing this? Well, the game last night was the the last um, the last Friday of the season. It was against the Astros, and 
I'm watching this game. Like, why are they showing it? So I looked it up and I saw that they win 11 to 10. It's a, a walk off. Well, that must be why. And I just have it on while I'm doing other stuff. And all of a sudden, Harry's like, <laughs> there's some idiot on the field to try to attack Randy Marley. I'm like, that's the John Murray game. That's why they showed it. Yep. Um, yeah, he's lucky that Randy didn't kill him. Oh, like, I mean, Sean Dunstan said the same thing. You're, I mean, Randy Myers was nuts to begin with, yeah. but then he's skilled in martial yeah. arts, and, you know, he's got all this crap in his locker. Of course, that's not on the mound with him that we know of, but, yeah, that was that was pretty wild. We had a pool reporter going down to Town Hall Police Station to see how that all turned out. Didn't Randy Myers have a grenade in his locker? Yes, he did. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Camouflage and the whole thing. Uh, it was a, a funny thing once. There was a, Jim Riggleman called him in to pitch one day, and Mark Grace is standing on the mound. He says, well, Jim, he goes, you think this dumb MF can get somebody out? So. <laughs> and then he went, after he retired, he coached uh, girls junior college basketball for a while in Washington. Yeah, State. and you know what? He shows up every now and then at Wrigley. We see him in the, the clubhouse uh, quite laid back, and he's always a good quote and uh, you know a good guy to deal with. And uh, I remember him, he hated uh, Larry Himes for some of his stupid rules uh, when Larry was there and so forth. But uh, uh, yeah, fun times, fun day that one was. <laughs> it's just crazy that that's what the... I it would have thought I would I would have recognized that that's what the game was. I still have it on, and all of a sudden, like, oh, maybe this is why they showed it. Because, uh, but otherwise, um, it was a great game to show because um, the Cubs tied it late, and then Mark Parent came in and ended up getting three at bats. So that's that's what you want to watch in a in a thirty year old game is Mark Parent batting three times. <laughs> um, Larry I got to see Larry Cassian pitch. That was great. I had really missed that experience. So, that yeah, they had some guys. They had some guys, Larry Cassian and Brian Hickerson and Mike Walker and and, and some of these guys. Chris Napholtz. They had him yeah. uh, coming out of the fan. Uh, Willie Banks was on the team. So, a lot of interesting guys in an interesting year. Mike Perez pitched sixty eight games for them that year. <laughs> I hardly remember that, but yeah. It's like, oof. Canyon Sturts pitched for him. So there you go. Yeah, he was a Rule 5 pick that year, and uh, they were lucky, I guess. He had a, actually came out and had a nice career, as it turned out, but he was a Rule 5 pick, and they were able to sneak him onto the roster with the 28 men, and they were able to um, keep him. But, uh, yeah, just it was just kind of just a whole weird kind of thing with, uh, you know, coming back from the strike and all this other kind of stuff. So, uh, but, yeah, and that was Riggleman's first year, and – you found out that he was actually a pretty good in-game manager. You know, we've seen some of the other kind yeah. uh, on the north side of the town, but he's like America's interim manager. He's always been <laughs> saddled with really bad teams. And then when he finally got one in Washington, he up and quit. So it's like, and I don't, I forgot that he actually managed the Mariners for a while as an interim manager. Yeah. So I, I had forgotten about that. So, but actually a very good in-game manager. Well, and that was, I didn't remember this. I, I did not realize, I guess I, I'm sure I realized it at the time. I forgot that the Rick Wilkins for Luis Gonzalez, Scott service trade was an in-season trade. For some reason, I thought it happened in the off-season. Because I'm looking through this and I'm like, well, how the hell did Rick Wilkins catch 50 games for the Cubs that year? And I was like, oh, because, so on the, in that season, the Cubs had a cast of, of thousands at catcher. They had Rick Wilkins, Scott Service, Todd Pratt, 
Joe Kamak, and Mark Parent. And Mike and Hubbard. Mike Hubbard. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> so they had, do you know how, do you remember how long the 28 man roster was? Did it phase out or did they do it for the whole? No, they phased it out. I, I think it might have been for three weeks to a month just because they, you know, they had to make sure everybody was in shape and they didn't want to be ruining guys' arms. So I, I think it was for about three weeks to the first month of the okay. season. Because well, this is supposed to be this is supposed to be the, the first year of the twenty six man roster, and then according to uh, well, one thing that's, that looks like it's just not going to happen this year is a minor league season. So the idea then is you you need to have a bigger roster for that because you don't have anybody to call up. You know, if you start at say thirty and then say all right, a month then we're going to cut back to twenty six. Somebody gets hurt, who's supposed to pitch? Um, right. So Passon was saying that the, the idea they floated is a, you'd have a 50-man roster, and then you could have 30 active for a game. I don't know what the other 20 guys do. I guess they just hang out and work out. Again, like pitchers throw before games and stuff, and then they sit and they're one of the 12 people that sit in the stands. Um, I hope there's some kind of provision, though, as to, like, I hope you can't just set a new roster every day. Or we're just gonna have, we're gonna have four pitching changes an inning if they know they can just oh. take their whole pitching staff and shuffle in a new one the next day. The Dodgers and Brewers, those games would never end. No, uh, I think you pointed out in your newsletter that Craig Council would have use like eleven pitchers in a game or something like that. But no, it'd be crazy. I, I would think that they'd have to get all this sorted out. And you know, if you, if you got like fifty guys. With social distancing, you know, where do you put them to, on days when the Cubs are home? Do you have them go down to Sox Park and work out or have a simulated game or play against Sox minor leaguers? I don't know, but that's kind of the stuff that they're going to have to figure out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the only places you have that's big enough are the spring training complexes. And that's not a real efficient way then to have to keep flying people back and forth to Arizona and Florida. Um, and we don't need you for a few days, so you can go back and throw in Mesa. I guess they could do it, but... Um, and I don't know. And some of it with the minor league, some of it I'm sure is a safety and a practical issue. The other is that for whatever reason, Major League Baseball has decided that they want to just take a blowtorch to minor league baseball. And this is going to be an excuse for them to do it. Oh, yeah. Listen, anytime that there's a, a crisis, whether it's major or minor, and we're finding out now in life what's major, it's this stuff. Minor crises are like work stoppages and that. They like to experiment with things to kind of see what works. In 81, with the strike, they tried the division series where you had extra teams in the playoffs. And, and what I think with this, um, I think Theo would kind of like this three-league, 10-team thing so he could have the DH in all the leagues. Because Theo desperately wants the DH in the National League, use the DH and then hope like next year everybody forgot that they used it, and we're just going to keep using it. So uh, I think that's one thing they'd love to experiment yeah. with. Well, I, I've I've thought all along that if they if they use a DH for this season, then we'll never not have a DH. Oh, and, absolutely. And yeah, I even went back and looked at I can't remember who it was who was the last pitcher to bat for the um, in the in game five of the world series was because that's going to become like the, the Addison Russell was the last player to ever get an actual four pitch intentional walk. 
Um, whoever that guy was would very well be the last pitcher whoever bats, except for when uh, Dusty screws up his lineup and then ends up losing the DH. <laughs> like Dusty, you uh, you put a position player in. Uh, you you have to, you don't have a DH anymore. What? What's that rule? Yeah, I never managed this league is- before. I don't know what I don't know how that works. Hey man, don't ask me. But uh, no, I mean these these situations have given baseball an opportunity, and once it happens, listen. I, in one sense, I'm a purist. I'd love to see the pitcher back, but practical standpoint, they use it everywhere except one league in Japan and the National League. Let's go. And the whole thing about strategy went out the window with pitch counts. There's no situation where you're starting pitchers coming up in the bottom of the eighth when your team is down two to one or one to nothing or tied. He's done by the fifth or sixth anyway because he's at 110 pitches. So the whole strategy thing went out the window with pitch count. So you might as well use it. And I've talked with Theo about that a hundred times. It just drives him nuts. Yeah, the only the only thing it really still does is forces National League managers to use their bench more. But otherwise, oh, yeah. um, because you know, otherwise it has very little effect. Um, like you said, it do, it doesn't drive pitching decisions anymore. It's just, um, you know, you're never going to end well, up. Well, yeah, you saw with how Joe used his line of move. I'm moving this guy. I'm moving Brian from third to right. Next inning, he's moving Brian from right to left. And then the inning after that, he's moving Brian from left back to third. And uh, I, and that kind of segues into another thought, which we, if you want to get into, I remember you posted something on Twitter about, you know, what manager would you want in this goofy situation yeah. like this? It's him. Yes. He's, <laughs> I was just thinking about that. First, it, what I was thinking was, is that this is a, this is an especially tough time for a rookie manager because you've got all the normal stuff you've got to deal with, plus all this other weird crap. And then I thought, well, well, that's just another reason why the coach should have kept Joe because they would have for a season that is going to live on how well you can improvise. He's the perfect guy to do it. Go oh, and yeah, and then if you would have asked him one question about it, he'd have gone on for ten minutes, like telling you why it was the greatest thing what he was doing, and everybody would believe him. It's it's just another reason why the the cold timing of the Marquee Network was so bad. I mean, Joe is like the perfect manager to have if you have a 24-hour cable channel to fill because you just throw a microphone in front of him and he's, he asks him one question, he fills two hours. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. But, and I'm Not to beat a dead horse, but you know, everybody else in that organization got extensions. He was the only guy that didn't, which I felt was kind of a crappy deal for him. You know, Jason McLeod, all the, who got, you know, whatever you want to call it, kicked upstairs, reassigned, whatever. He's still there. He got his extension, Theo, Jet, everybody. And Joe, the guy who held things together, no matter how much you want to criticize his in-game moves, they're down three games to one. He held the team together. And he's the only guy that didn't get any extension out of it, which I thought was a shitty deal. Yeah. I mean, the biggest the biggest myth about the 2016 World Series is that they, is that they won it in spite of Joe. Because it's just right. not, that's just not true. I mean, no, we, I'll tell you what, they were ripe to be beat down three to one. Yeah. The beat writers would get a little seance with him in his office before every game. He was the same guy games one through seven. The music's going, and he's talking to us about what's on TV, and it's like you'd never know it. Well, we'd seen it every playoff series ever with them, was that the 
the Cubs could the Cubs didn't finish. They did two things. They they couldn't finish off a series. We saw that in '84 and '03. And as soon as they faced an elimination game in any series, they were done. They never. Yeah. I mean, they got swept out of more play, including the 2015 when they got swept by the Mets. And you just expected like, okay, well, we know what the Cubs do now. When they when as soon as they lost Game Four, you just thought, holy crap. Um. I w- I've always been very impressed because Game Five of the World Series, I think, is the is the best game of the World Series. Yeah, um, it's it's a fun one to rewatch. I was I'm always I shouldn't always be surprised, which means I don't learn anything. But I'm I, I still I'm surprised at the atmosphere at the beginning of that game because one thing Cub fans are not real known for is facing adversity and saying we can do it. And that place was nuts, and it certainly didn't hurt that John Lester struck out the side in the top of the first. But it would, that was a very atypical. Cubs have their back against the wall crowd. They were like, "Screw it, we're not going to lose tonight." And then the team right. played like it. So, so one of the things that I, I tried to figure out as I was writing the newsletter last night was, okay, so if you have a, they said, well, try to play between eighty and hundred games. So if you start on July first. I, unless you want to play into Christmas, you're not going to play 100 games. So playing half a season seems to make the most sense. And then I thought, well, even the math is pretty easy because um, you've got four other teams in your division. So just play each of them 10 times. That's 40 games. Then you've got the 10 teams in the two other divisions. Play each of them four times. You, you need one five-game series. you got 81 games, and you're done. And then I thought, oh, crap, I forgot. <laughs> They don't have an even number of teams in the leagues, so they still have to play interleague games. And so now I don't know how somebody makes that schedule, because the whole idea, the the no. beauty, the beauty of it, if you play, if you only, if you're going to play the Cardinals ten times, you have a five game series in Chicago, you have a five game series in St. Louis, and so then you're only traveling to St. Louis once. You you take half the teams in the West, you go play two of them, and the two of them come and play you. I guess there's five. And then somebody else comes to play you. But it all works out. But as soon as you put interleague in it, and you have to have one interleague series every day, there have to be two teams from, the, from each league playing each other. Now you have to chop the schedule up, and you defeat the purpose, because now you've got to send teams out. You're back to having three-game series and two-game series. And so my suggestion, see if you think this is a good idea, I just think they should just give the Brewers back to the American League. <laughs> I think you put in your newsletter, nobody would notice. So, <laughs> I mean, they're only in the but, National League because Bud wanted to make the franchise that he technically didn't own because uh, Wendy was running it. He wanted to make them more valuable, so he put them in the National League. So they can just go back. Right, and like you said, too, over a shorter season and in a more serious vein, it really kind of magnifies the inequities of the interleague schedule. Whereas if you're playing, if you're one team that's playing four crappy teams and you're another team that's playing four good teams over that, it just magnifies the importance of each game. So there's a real inequity and an unfair situation there. So I I think that'd be the perfect time to either scrap it completely interleague play or to say, okay, this year, forget it this year. We're just going to go with each league playing its own teams. Right, but the only way to accomplish that is you have to you'd have to temporarily move a team. You have to say, yeah, okay, I so guess this so. year you have with... to go to the other league. Either the Astros come back, and we don't want that, or the Brewers go back, which would be fine. Um, 
Because you're right. It's So then my other thought was, all right, so tr- every team, not every team, they try to have a supposed geographic rival. Like, obviously, the Cubs and the White Sox, the Yankees and Mets, the Giants and – or the um, Dodgers and – Giants and A's. Yeah, Giants and A's, Dodgers and Angels. Those – there's a natural fit for all of them. Then you end up with weird ones. Um, even the Twins and Brewers works. But there are some yeah. that just like who the Diamondbacks, who do they get? The Mariners, who do they get? Um, but if you assign one to each team, and that's the only interleague games you have to play, every team gets one series. And then you could, in theory, then say, okay, we're going to stick with the four game thing, treat them like an out of division one, and then there's going to be one team in your own league you're not going to play, which is not great. Because you're tra- you're playing for the championship of the National League, and then hey, this year the Cubs aren't going to play the Diamondbacks. Um, but it would, from a scheduling standpoint, it would make sense. From a com- competition it, thing, it doesn't make any sense because then you could get, you know, say the White Sox really are good this year, the Royals are still going to be terrible. So that gives a tremendous advantage to the Cardinals, who get to play a terrible Royals team, while the Cubs have to play the White Sox. It's right. It's diluted. It's ha- it's it's only half as impactful in a full season. But when you're only going to play 81 games, that becomes a big deal. And so that's another issue they have to deal with. That's one I'm sure they're not that concerned about. They're really concerned about we need to have a season so we can all get our TV money. But from a competition standpoint, it does become a big deal. Yeah, and the devil is going to be in the details. Well, you know, we'll see what the Players Association has to say about this. And they're going to have to get a special waiver probably to play in Canada because Trudeau up there has, you know, enacted some some regulations there about numbers of people that can gather. So they'll probably have to, get, which I'm sure they'd be able to do because it's Major League Baseball, you'd have to get a waiver for, for, for Canada to adhere to their laws. But I don't know how much of this they've thought out and – a lot of what's going on here has just been throwing crap against the wall to see what sticks. It, yeah. You know, it, and you know that's what we do too. So it's uh, that that's to be expected. But yet, this is all stuff that they're going to have to work out. And if they plan to open spring training camps in June, and then where do they have those? Do they have those at your home ballpark? That's another thing. These are things that they're going to have to work out pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, because it. I suppose spring training it's easier. Because you only have to worry about two states. If and from a more practical standpoint, you have the facilities to handle more players. Is to just go back to Arizona and go back to Florida. But you're also gonna, it's gonna be, you're starting to get to a point where it's gonna be tough to be productive in Arizona because it's gonna get so damn hot. It's and, already hot. There was 107 yeah. the other day there. So now you end up you're working out either first thing in the morning or you're gonna have your workouts at night, which I guess isn't the worst possible thing but it's certainly not it's not what you want but then you know if the cubs come back to and they're going to just work out at wrigley well i guess they did they did redo the visitors clubhouse so they could easily the minor leaguers can use that clubhouse and the big leaguers can use theirs i suppose it i suppose there's a way to make it all work and then you could have a couple of scrimmages with the white Sox, and i'm sure marquee and um nbc sports chicago would be more than happy to televise those um, sure, you go up to Milwaukee and play, you know, a couple exhibition games up there. You have the three teams within 90 miles of each other here. So I, I suppose you're going to have to play exhibition games. That would be the way to do it. 
So one of the one of the things that is going to have to change, and it and it's one of those things where it's a temporary change, but then we know human nature is that they they find something they like and they want to change it. Is how guys who do your job are able to do it. I mean, they'd already that right before everything shut down, it was okay. We can't let we can't let reporters into the clubhouse. And I think some people gave Paul Sullivan shit because he's as the president of the Baseball Writers of America. He's like, hey, you know, he was protesting that, but he's protesting it from the idea that once once they don't do it, are they ever going to go back to that? Well, yeah, this is the other thing, and this is what I tried to talk about before. Whenever you have a crisis, they they try things, and then somehow they always stick, like the DH. You know, that's one thing. But this is another thing. I think that that was a trial balloon, what they did in spring training, to see that if, if they couldn't keep this up, you know, um, indefinitely, not to have reporters in the clubhouse. And selfishly, even though I'm sort of retired from the business, so I, I think it's really important that we're in there to, to get the best stories. And, you know, it's not a thing of you want to be in a clubhouse. There's nothing worse before a game, three <laughs> hours before a game, standing around in a huge clubhouse that the Cubs have and nobody's in there. But I, I just think that that's another thing that, you know, you'll have a common interview room and you, you, social distancing and all that. But it's, you know, that's another thing that they're, they're, they're going to have to work out. But yeah, that's a, a, to me as a lifelong reporter and, and somebody who liked working a clubhouse and having a one-on-one with a guy at his chair or whatever, I, I think it's a little bit ominous. And, you know, the, I saw some of the blowback. I got some of that myself on Twitter. You know, you know, why do you need to be in there and, and stuff like that? It's like, you know, I don't tell a doctor he doesn't need this equipment or an accountant or whatever it is. If we're telling you we need it, then we need it. And the only reason we're doing it is, is to provide information to the public. So, yeah, that's a, that's another one. And I, I think that the, the thing that average fan doesn't there's they have no reason to think about is i mean the reason you guys are in there in the first place was back whenever they started it teams needed you know it started with the newspapers they needed coverage in the newspapers so they had to do things to get you know the the reason reporters were in there was so that reporters could talk to players and reporters could write stories about it which would help publicize the teams and the games and help them get attendance and it's lasted obviously a long time but now we're at this point where every team has its own media you know like the cubs could very easily get by with just having somebody from cubs.com and somebody from marquee in there and then you end up with the the only in-depth coverage you're getting is is completely controlled by the team which is not a service for the fans no and i'll give you a good example we're in san diego one day about 15 whatever how many years ago and uh, we're talking, and we see Sammy Sosa sneeze, and he throws out his back. And you can see it visibly. He wins from this. Now, do you think if we weren't allowed in there, we'd be up in the press box? Uh, Sammy's a late lineup scratch. So do you think for one minute they'd say he threw out his back sneezing? No. You know, they, they, just said, they just said, oh, Sammy showed up, the back was a little bit tight today because they wouldn't have wanted to embarrass him or make a ridiculous situation. But the fact that we were in the clubhouse to see it, you know, at least provided some color. And there are other more important examples, but I'm using that as, yeah. as one that, uh, of why you, you need to be in there. Well, he wouldn't, Mark McGuire wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have been a big deal that he forgot to turn his Androstein Dion rap, or label to the back of his locker. 
because somebody saw it and wrote down, what is that? And looked it up and went, ooh, this is not a normal thing that he's taking. No, so there's a thousand examples of that. How would we know when like Mike Rel- How would we know when Mike Relinger gets his finger caught between two chairs? <laughs> we would have had no idea. Right, right, and uh, well, I'll just uh, leave it at that. <laughs> um, we would still have known when. Uh, God, who else? Was, who was the guy? The guy they got from the A's, um, who fell into the dumpster. Oh, Chad, Chad Godine. Chad, Chad Godine. Godine. That one we'd still know. That didn't happen in the club. <laughs> we just still found it. And uh, the Kyle Farnsworth breaking his foot, punting a baseball in the outfield. That one is also one that you guys might have. Still well, I'll give you a. Per- I'll give you a personal example. We're in St. Louis at the near the end of the '09 season, and the, it was a Friday night, and Carlos Zambrano kind of got into it with Gordon Wittenmeyer. So it was uh, the next day afternoon game, and I wanted to talk to Z about it. So I waited and I waited up until the last minute other reporters leave z's not coming out i'm walking out the door and the last locker by the door is milton bradley so i say hey milton you got a second and uh that turned to milton being suspended the next day because all the stupid stuff he said to me yeah. Yeah. so that's there's an example right there that actually had some uh, effect on the team and 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 a guy's career yeah i mean there's it's it's something that fans and some fans won't notice it at all, but it's something that fans will notice if if reporters don't go back into the clubhouse. Um, we will will simply know less about what's going on and and less about the players themselves, because and I'm sure there's a bunch you know the teams think well we've got our own media outlets we don't have to worry about that the players think well I've got social media and I hand somebody to be my publicist I don't need that well but they really do. Because that other stuff simply complements the coverage they get. It it can't replace it. You just you won't know people as well. And some of the things that you really like about your favorite players are things you only found out because a reporter sat down and talked to them when they had a free minute. And um, some of them are going to think it's going to be a lot better. And chances are it's not. No, and a perfect example is John Lester. He's the biggest red ass in the business, right? You know, he comes off as intimidating. You go in that locker room and you say, hey, John, you got a minute? Sure, sit down. And then he's a different guy, cause, and he's got thoughts, you know. For as big a red ass as he is, John Lester has a lot of thoughts and a lot of really good ones about baseball, whether it's on the, the opener concept with starting pitchers, whether it's on pitchers batting, whatever you want to do it. And John is a really engaging guy. If you sit down with him at his locker one-on-one rather than in some interview situation, and, and you know, how are you going to get a one-on-one? It's going to be harder to get a one-on-one because the guy will say, no, I don't want to come out. But if he's in his locker, at his locker, guys are almost always going to say, even if it's grudging, yeah, I got a minute. What do you need? Yeah. So. Yeah, Lester always comes across as the guy who asks, "Can I ask you a question?" He's like, "Ugh," and then he gives you a fifteen yeah. minute. And then he gives you a fifteen minute answer to your question. That, so. That's exactly how it is with him, because you know, okay, at first it's a pain in the ass, but uh, as long as you ask, I'll tell you. <laughs> so one of the things we found out the, you know, we've got the the Bulls documentary, The Last Dance, um, has been on, and then ESPN announced. Um, the three thirty for thirties they're going to have on in that same Sunday night time slot. There's one on Lance Armstrong that I think is a two-parter. I don't remember the other one. And then they're doing the 98 
uh, home run chase um, with Sammy and Mark McGuire. And it made me think, um, did you get an Emmy for um, your part in the World Series uh, video where you ask uh, Kyle Schwarber when he knew that he was going to come back? No, I should have, though. Yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> snub. Yeah, well, I should have gotten one, too. You know, that you know, I, I don't care one or the other. ESPN did not interview me for this, but I was the guy that asked Sammy, or I asked both of them, we, we go to St. Louis in September, and this you know, the Cubs-Cardinals, and McGuire is about to break, break the record. So I thought, you know, just for the hell of it, I'll ask this question. We're in a big media tent. Which one of you is the man? Because Sammy, oh, I'm the man. You know, he's the man. So, you know, Sammy goes, well, I'm the man in my country, and he's the man here. And it was, you know, every soundbite in the world. But uh, so that that's the other one I should have won an Emmy for but didn't. But, you know, I'll wait. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, Susan Lucci had to get nominated 13 times before she won hers. So, you know, you're in good company. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'll be, I will be very interested that the tone of the documentary could be anything. I mean, it they could focus on the idea that it saved baseball. They could focus it on the idea that, you know, you look back in hindsight, as just as, at least just as a fan and think, how did I, we ever think any of this was on the level? I mean, they, you know, they're so, they're both so cartoonishly big. Um, so, you know, and I suppose if it's a good documentary, it'll touch on all of those kind of, you know, the, the theme will kind of evolve as you watch it because it's, it is kind of a complicated thing. I mean, it was, it was undeniably fun as it was happening. Um, but it also was, uh, you know, not, it was phony. <laughs> what we were watching wasn't real. Yeah, there's, there's so many parts to that season I remember. And, you know, in May we were in Cincinnati on a Sunday. It was a getaway day, and, like, Sammy refused to talk with us. There, there were three of us on the road that day, uh, myself, Mike Kiley, and Paul Sullivan, and Sammy had done something on the game, and he, did, he just refused to talk. And it's like, what's wrong with this guy? Is he... Is he jealous that Kerry Woods getting all this attention? Is you know, he's in the funk? And then all of a sudden, two weeks later, June happens, and twenty home runs later. After that, we got a whole new ball game. You know, and you go down the stretch, and you know, Sammy's enjoying the hell out of this. Where McGuire, you know, is this old grump about the whole damn thing, and it was just kind of this juxtaposition. One guy having a lot of fun with it, and, and the other guy, it looked like the ballpark on some days was the last place he wanted to be. So I, maybe the answer to this is obvious. Do you think McGuire would have broken the record if Sammy hadn't been close? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, he because he, he demolished it. He hit seventy. It's not like he hit sixty-two. Um, I but, just think Sammy's presence there added a whole different dimension. You know, I don't know if it pushed him. I don't know if you can push a guy to hit home runs. Maybe somebody that size, however he got there, you can. But no, I think he did. I think he'd have got there regardless. Yeah. I just wondered if it would have gotten so in his head because he seemed to just loathe all of it. Um, and the Sammy thing did, I think, kind of – it probably did two things. It took it took some of the load off of him, but it also – it put an extra onus on getting there first because now all of a sudden there's this – you know, you, you've spent all year putting up with all the crap, and then at the last minute – you know, some other guy ends up <laughs> breaking the record before you do. You know, that, that would have really sucked if you were Mark McGuire. You know, he, he carried the load for most of the season, and then all of a sudden at the end to have, you know, some 
you know, the Cubs Dominican right fielder, you know, be the one who actually broke the record before he did. And Sammy played the national media like a fiddle that year. You'd read some of the stories from, you know, New York Times, whatever paper, and it's like, oh, here's a man who likes nothing more than just to go home and have a glass of wine with his wife because that's what he would say every day. <laughs> it's like those of us who come to see him, like, oh, my God. So, yeah, I mean, so Sammy played the national media just perfectly where they all flocked to him and wrote all these wonderful stories about him. He, You know, he got the MVP, you know, he's just, he was just everybody's darling back then. And, you know, when, when he could still be an asshole to the, to the local people. Well, and that's one of the jarring things about Marquis airing the games from 95 and 96 is to how much smaller Sammy is. You know, he's still a muscular guy and he hit a lot of home runs, but you know, then you think but you, your mind's eye remembers him from, you know, 98 on. And then you look at him and you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) where's the rest of him? Because, uh, things are going to change. Yeah. And then, you know what? And he was actually kind of a serviceable outfield, you know, outfielder at the time, you know, people liked his throwing arm. He could run a little bit. He actually cared about playing defense that stopped you know, from 98 on. So, yeah, there was a whole different uh, whole different deal with him, like those games you mentioned, 95 and 96, and then after that. Yeah, I mean, he played he played a fair amount of center field at times because he still kind of could. Um, yeah, you know, you know, all the comparisons to Clemente's arm and all that kind of stuff, and you know, which seems, you know, silly now. But, uh, yeah, and, and he actually seemed to care about it. Yeah. All I remember about the arm was it seemed like whenever he wanted to show it off, the catcher would have to field it off about three-quarters of the way up the screen. <laughs> yeah. You'd have to turn. You'd see the catcher turn around and start running. It's like, yeah, this, that throw is not going to be close. Um, yeah. And there was never a cutoff man that he couldn't miss, which includes oh, no, the no, very no. important part of uh, game six in the 2000. 2000- three NLCS. He showed that off too, with no chance to get somebody at home. And uh, yeah. he still did it. Ah, uh, that was our Sammy. I, one thing that will, that is a mystery to me is the Ricketts family's stance towards him. You know, they, they act like they're personally aggrieved by Sammy. And I, I don't quite understand it. They, if anything, they are perpetuating it. The easiest thing in the world for them would be have him come to a game and throw out the first pitch and be done with it. You don't have to, you know, they act like, well, we, you know, you don't have to put a statue up. You don't need to make him a special assistant. You know, have him show up one day, wave to the fans, you know, fire a ball halfway up the screen for old time's <laughs> sake. And you could have him sing the stretch, and then you're done with it. You don't have to answer the questions about why you never have never had Sammy back. And it seems like they're so they won't they won't explain what he did, but they want you to know that whatever it was was bad. And then they just it it just festers. I it's, yeah, and it's really, it's really stupid, uh, Andy, because Tom Ricketts has really put himself in a box with this that he can't get himself out of. And and when you ask him about it, he won't give you the explanation. I'm not going to talk about they've got to do these, but they don't mind showing his highlights on the video board. His flag for the 66 home runs is still up on the uh, the roof and everything. They welcomed 
Carlos Zambrano back. Z walked out on the team in Atlanta in 2011 and did all sorts of stupid stuff on the field, throwing the ball to the outfield, you know, wrecking the Gatorade thing and all that. Here you had the most marketable guy, one of the most marketable guys in the history of your franchise. You can just say that you bring him back. Oh, Tom and I talked, or Tom can say Sammy and I talked, and everything's fine. We squared a few things away. I'm not going to get into it, but everything's fine. Yeah, it's but we know they're they have a very long. Well, they've only owned the team since when? Technically, two, end of 2009, I guess. Right. Yes. So 11 years, and they have a list of PR disasters as long as their arm, and they're almost all ones they could have avoided. No, they're all self-inflicted. I mean, you know, uh, even not showing up at the convention, it, it was that they got every softball question they could. You've been at the convention or. Yep. All that, and it's all a big love fest, and, and they even ducked out on that the last two years. So yeah, all of these these things are are, are self inflicted wounds or unforced errors, whatever you want to call them. So, who gets the next statue? Oh gosh, I don't know if you do a Greg Maddox. If you do Greg Maddox and Fergie Jenkins together because they're number yeah. thirty ones. Or if you know, if you're looking currently, if you're looking at a guy currently, if there's somebody on, you know, somebody on pace to to to, to win the hall of to be in the hall of fame, you know, is it a Rizzo? It is. Is it a Bryant? Uh, is it Joe Madden? You know, I always felt that the first Cubs manager that would win the world's first World Series since 1908 would be an easy one well, to have the, a statue of. Yeah, with a mad one, they just they can just buy his RV and bronze it. And just park it right in front of the stadium. They wouldn't even need to to, to make and put a big pair of glasses on the windshield or something. But then, though, that's a good one to say. If if you're going back, you know, maybe a Maddox or a Jenkins, because they're both Hall of Famers who don't have statues there, because Ernie, Billy, and Ronnie do. But you know, you know, if you're looking at today, it'd be fun to speculate. You know, John Lester did so much to yeah. change the culture of the franchise. The best free agent signing in Cubs history, and maybe. Chicago history. If you talk to John McDonough, he'll say Marion Hosa. But um, uh, so he's a whole other topic we could just discuss someday. But 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 anyway, yeah, that's that's a great one. It's a, it's a fun one to mess around with. But I, I think any of the guys that we've discussed there, you know, you know, would be uh, in line for that if they so chose. Well, it seems weird that the only statues are from the guys from. Well, I mean, Ernie obviously goes back before the '60s, but it's it's mostly that era. You know, it's, well, it's those three guys. And they all make sense. The statues are perfectly defensible. And especially the the Santo statue is one of the best sports statues I've ever seen. I mean, whoever it's did breathtaking. that, it's, it's tremendous. And it's, I, I was there for that unveiling. It was just, it took your breath away when they unveiled it. Absolutely. And it surprises me they haven't done a Sandberg yet. And you can almost even see it where he's, they could do one where he's, you know, he had that, kind of little leap that he would do at second base when he was turning the double play. And it seems like that would, you know, make for a, a, a nice statue. Um, and then it'll be, it'll be interesting. Yeah, that's to, my, yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting to see as we get, yep. as we get farther away from this era, how much contracts play into who gets one. Cause obviously if, if Bryant's only here for one more year, you're never going to see a Chris Bryant statue. No, um, I, 
even if Rizzo left at the end of his contract, at some point there's going to be an Anthony Rizzo statue. I just can't imagine that there there wouldn't be one. Um, right. And Lesser does seem like uh, like a natural. I mean, it's it's not it, it, it's it's one of those things where they they paid huge money to a guy who was probably at the very back end of his prime, and you knew why they did it. Because they needed to, they needed a horse, they needed somebody to kind of legitimize the rebuild, and then he goes out and he outperforms that contract. That never happens. You never sign a pitcher who's already thirty and pay him that money, and he's worth every penny. And if even if he didn't win a game this year, he's more than earned that entire contract. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'll just back up and say my bad on not mentioning Sandberg. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think he should probably be next. But on Lester, if you remember the first month of the season, there was all kinds of people on Twitter bitching and moaning because he came up with a little bit of shoulder fatigue in spring training, wanted to pitch through it, did pitch through it, and then you know eventually got things together. But there were people bitching and moaning about that. You know, this guy's stealing money, this, that, and the other thing. They're not, you know, in Game 7 of the World Series and winning it without him. That um, the whole 2015 season is, it's amazing how it started. You know, you didn't have, there were no bleachers. You know, just physically you had the weird setup at the beginning of the season. Then you had Lester not pitching well and with the whole, he won't throw to first thing became this huge deal. And... You know, this team that was like, well, maybe they're finally going to start to be good. And then by the end of it, um, you know, that's it, that it ended up being one of the most fun seasons any Cub fan has ever had. I mean, just the way they kind of plowed their way into the playoffs and then the wild card game. And then, you know, that there were a lot of, I, there were a lot of fans who, if you had told them, okay, they're never going to win World Series in, their, in your lifetime. But they're going to knock the Cardinals out of the playoffs this year. They've been like, okay, I'll take that. That'll that'll work. And the, the way it happened was Schwarber hitting the ball yeah. on top of the, the, the scoreboard like he did. He became an instant folk hero that day. And you're right. For me, it's right up at the top with fun teams I've covered. And it, it was a funny thing because at the end of the Mets series when they got swept, mm-hmm. people were like, okay, we're disappointed, but look out, here they come. Yeah, Yeah, it was that rare – it was the rare Cub, well, the Cub postseasons have been rare anyway, but that ended in a deflating way, but didn't deflate the fan base. You were disappointed. It's like, oh, that sucked. But you couldn't, like, the winner couldn't pass fast enough. It was, you know, can we just skip ahead to Mesa? Because things are going to get, things are getting interesting. And then the yeah, way and that, you had Arietta shoving it up everybody's yeah. ass in the second half of that season, <laughs> the way he pitched, including the no-hitter. So, I mean, that was a, another thing, the sweep of the Giants. Yeah, I was at the game where Cole Hamels no-hit him, and, you know, they, they played like crap for a couple of days, then here come the Giants, and then they sweep them. Yeah. Well, and that had the uh, the Saturday game in that series, had the ridiculous Hector got himself into that jam, got the bases loaded, and then struck out the side to get out of it. It was <laughs> yeah. just, it was just so much crazy stuff. And at the end of that series on Sunday – we had all the security people coming into the press box saying, everybody leave, there's a bomb threat. So, <laughs> and I've still got pictures of myself and others sitting on on the sidewalk on Sheffield Avenue, finishing our stories while sitting on the sidewalk. 
<laughs> that's how that series ended for me. Wonder who called in the bomb threat? Was it Bruce Bochy called it in just so they could get the hell out of there? I probably did. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, it, oh, one thing I meant to talk about when I the because your scene in the uh, in the documentary where it's very clearly you asking Kyle the question. Um. You, you obviously you were around the team all the time, and I kept joke. I was partially joking and partially thinking. I think this might actually happen. I kept insisting that he would, they would find a way to to get him back, um, before the season ended. Because he, yes, he blew out his knee and did horrible things to it, but he did it in the third game of the season. And the baseball season is so long. I remember thinking, well, maybe there's a chance. And the only the thing kept perpetuating it was, even at games they would do, like between innings they would occasionally flash a highlight of him working out on the field before the game. Now, that couldn't have just been an... There had to be some motivation behind that. Did you guys ever... Did you guys get a sense that it was at all a possibility until it actually happened? Yeah, because we kept probing on it a little bit. and The the, the main reason we thought so is because of Schwarber himself. I mean, he was bound and determined to do this. And that's one of the endearing features about this guy. He was like this, 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 you know, this stocky guy from Middletown, Ohio blows out his knee. And now he's working his ass off to come back. I just don't think there was any stopping him. And it's like probably Theo probably got sick and tired of listening to him and said, okay, go to Arizona and, and look at a thousand pitches and, and we'll talk to you. And then he wasn't out of sight, out of mind. He went down there, did everything they said. And they, and they're, now they're like, well, we got no choice. Yeah. Well, and I mean, who knows? It's easy to say they don't win the World Series without him, but I don't think they win the World Series without him. I mean, he probably not. He didn't just he didn't just acquit himself. Okay, you know, he hit four twelve in the World Series, <laughs> and he yeah. and he started the rally after the rain delay. Yeah, absolutely. I just watched it the other day as everybody else did around here. And as you're like, this is just, this is totally incredible what's happening here. And I just one of those things to me, it's uh, I have a soft spot for guys like that. And, you know, with another guy with the media, he's really good. He's always, you know, taking time. And he's really true to his roots. He's really a humble guy who, you know, really hasn't lost that, you know, Midwestern sensibility. But yeah, that stuff, uh, you know, the people, you know, say that you're over mythologizing a guy or glorifying a guy, but um, like you said, kind of an important time he did all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to over mythologize a guy who actually did it. You know, it's yeah. You know, he. It's ridiculous to think that you can go, um, you know, six months between big league at bats and get your get that first one in the World Series and not be completely overwhelmed. He struck out in the first at bat, and then after that, it seemed like, you know, he almost hit, the, he almost hit a home run in game one. He hit it way up on the wall. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, he's he certainly, he's a, and he, he's a very easy guy to like. Um, I think the narrative switched in a very unfair way on him defensively during the LCS against the Mets. 
Um, Absolutely, yeah. Michael Conforto, who's an actual outfielder, was making just as big a mess <laughs> on a fly balls to left as Kyle was. But because Kyle was the converted catcher, I'd be like, well, he can't play out there. That's ridiculous. What are they, what are they doing? And, and that was nowhere near the reason they got swept in that series. No, and he had he had improved. Well, he had nowhere to go but up. Um, but he had improved during that season, and then obviously he's gotten better you know, all the time. We know what it's like to see a catcher in left field that doesn't work, and that would have been um, Todd Hunley with the Mets. Yeah. I mean, Kyle never did that. It was you – know, Todd looked like he was completely lost on every fly ball. Like, he was just circling everything. Um, you know, Schwarber, he was never that. But it's, 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 it's weird how narratives – Start and then, if people don't want them to go away, evidence isn't going to deter them. They're just going to continue to hammer it. So, yeah, and then the whole thing with him being the leadoff hitter the next year and they going back to the minor leagues that that probably didn't help the narrative either. But you know that wasn't completely his fault. And uh, the guy bounced back last year and really had a hell of a year. Yeah. If you you look at all of his numbers. Well, there was the, we saw it with Schwarber. We saw it with Hap. Um, and Almora, they they finally did send Albert down, but I think that was more of a roster thing than anything else because they sent him down with just a couple of weeks before rosters expanded. They basically just gave him a break. But it does seem that the Cubs have been the Schwarber thing when he struggled in 2017. Felt like it went on a lot longer than it should have, to the point yeah. where them sending him to Iowa. It, they seemed to add a stigma to it. it. It was perfectly understandable when he got off to a bad start. That here's a guy who missed all the last season, and we're just going to send him to Iowa and let him get a bunch of at bats, and we're going to bring him back. And they just wouldn't do it. They kept, you kept watching him struggle and struggle and struggle, and it's like you, you have a AAA affiliate for a reason. You know, let him go, and it, that, but that's not been unique to him. The Pitchers, they shuffle um, without any thought. But for whatever reason, with position players, it's got to just be, I guess, their philosophy. You know, we've seen guys struggle, and it's like, just get him out of here for a while. Take the spotlight off of him. And they seem very loath to do that. Am I crazy? No, I don't think so. Uh, you know, they did it, the, you know, the, the one year with, you know, Hap when they sent him to the minor leagues right out of the end of spring training. But, yeah, it was for for some reason, and, and that whole built another narrative of, like, you know, Schwarber's their golden boy. He was their pick, and Theo loves him and all this other stuff. But, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think you're crazy in thinking that. It just it went on for too long, and I think the whole leadoff thing, probably did him an injustice, Joe's stubbornness in keeping him there. It probably wasn't a bad thought in theory because he sees a lot of pitches, mm-hmm. has a high on base percentage, but you know, whether, you know, and Kyle would never tell you it got in his head or what's the reason for his, any struggles. We'll never know that, but yeah, it was just the, the whole thing snowballed. And, and I think un, unfairly to him, he's had a, a lot of things to overcome as far as perceptions. Well, Hopefully we, his second half last year was very impressive and um, it went on, it went on too long to have just been a hot streak. So hopefully we see that carry over whenever they finally get back. And that's another thing. I mean, we're this, this short season, um, if they, if they actually get it started, which I think they're going to, they seem hell bent to do it. Um, Public and, 
public health be damned. I think I think we're going to have some length of a baseball season regardless. Yeah, there's a few billion reasons they're yeah. doing it, but yeah. Um, you know, everything's going to be a small sample size. I mean, you could end up with a team that's not that great winning the World Series. You could end up with players who aren't that great having huge years because in a, the the thing that that bangs around in my brain is um 2003 Corey Patterson where yeah. he got off to the great start and he was not playing well his numbers were but he had built up decent stats good not decent really good stats and when he but if you go back and look he was really struggling when he got hurt Yep. But if you look at his if you look at his numbers like wow, he had a really good season before he got hurt. But most of that was built in April. And you could, you know, that kind of stuff happens. And you could also have a really good player who looks like he has a terrible season this year because he gets off to a slow start and then gets back to his normal, you know, self, but there aren't enough games for the stats to even themselves out. So it's you know, the the fewer games you play, the less representative the season could be for better or worse. So we could have, this could, we could have some really crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and if it's an older player, you could say this guy's done, or maybe he just got, you know, had a bad 80 games or whatever, or, you know, had a bad 25 games at the start. And, and if he's, you know, if he's an older player, people are going to say, well, he's done. Yeah. When all he really did was he had a bad stretch. And because the season's only three months long, instead of six, he didn't have enough time for his numbers to even themselves out. Um, right. So you're going to have to, whenever they get going, you're going to have to take everything with a grain of salt from individual stats. Like you said uh, in your newsletter, you know, we could double them and say, this is what the guy would have done. Well, maybe, maybe not yeah. to, to maybe a mediocre team, you know, winning a division by being slightly over 500 and winning the world series. So, yeah. 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 The thing I always think about with uh, putting stats in context was when I was in when I was in college, I had a friend who was a Sox fan, and one of the things he liked was that they would show Carlton Fisk's stats against like so. Let's say they're playing the um, playing the Yankees, they would put his career stats up against the Yankees, and because he had played so long, he had basically played the equivalent of a career of you know, of a season against the Yankees. And my friend liked the fact, he's like, I love these because it looks like, okay, if he had played the Yankees every day for a year, this is what his stats would have come. Obviously, it's not. Um, yeah. But they, you could basically put it in context. You know, if Fisk had hit 20 homers and 80 RBIs in his career against the Yankees, that was going to be roughly 162 games. It was it was just us entertaining ourselves. Um, but I still find I still do that the first month whenever they put stats up is I just take them and go, all right, well, if he does this six more times, this is what his season's going to be. That's why I think they should play 81 because then I don't have to do very much math. I can I can double I can double things in my head, and uh, so for for just for my sake, they should play half a season. Um, well, most sports writers got into it because they thought there'd be no math in it, so this makes it easier for you know the, right. the people covering the team too. So one thing we don't know, I mean, what they talked about that. Uh, I think the the plan that people got most excited about was the the three geographic divisions thing because it would be cool to have a season where you you know loaded up on games against the teams that are closest to you um it looks like they're there's no reason to do that if they're going to go back to everybody playing in their regular parks um 
But under that plan, supposedly, they were going to do the expanded playoffs. I don't think we can avoid expanded playoffs because they're going to want part of the way they're going to make up for revenue-wise for the lack of regular season games is to have more playoff games because they can build oh, yeah. for those. Um, so we could have an 81-game season where seven teams make the playoffs <laughs> from each league. So effectively, half, almost half the league sticks around to keep playing after the season's over. Um, so the regular season really isn't going to prove much. It's just going to eliminate, you know, the the bottom half of the league, and then the real stuff starts. And I guess maybe that's the fairest way to do it in a in a short season is to have a longer postseason where the good teams, you know, beat up on each other instead of loading up on the teams that turns out just weren't prepared to play. Right, and again, that's another case of where a crisis gives them thought to where, you know, if this seven teams in each league in the playoffs works now, hell, we might as well do it when things get back to normal and we have a 162-game season. People loved it just like they loved the hockey and basketball playoffs. Let's let everybody in. The the one thing that I think won't... The one thing it looks like they might still have to do is well maybe not it depends because they're not adding that much of a postseason they're going to add the wild card round is going to be two out of three with the best record in each league getting to sit it out so you get to skip around yeah so that only adds a few days to the playoffs but if they if they end up having to start even later and they go to the neutral site playoffs and world series that's something i don't think would ever stay and people would forgive that for a year and be like okay fine um but I just can't imagine anybody's going to actually want to see that perpetuate. But I could no, no. I mean, the Cleveland Indians—they came so close. Do you think if they're in the World Series five years from now, they want to play it in you know Texas's ballpark? Hell no. Yeah. Well, yeah. Think how disappointing it would have been for the Cubs fans to have waited around for you know sixty years for a World Series game, and had it been you know in Dodger Stadium. You know, that's that would not. That would not have been cool. No, um, but I absolutely agree. All the other stuff, the DH, the maybe even the roster size, um, the rounds of playoffs. The they may they were talking in the spring when they were going to play at the spring training sites that they would use the electronic strike zone because they didn't want the umps, the home plate ump behind the catcher. That's a thing that I think if they do it, that'll never go away. Um, right. And honestly, I'm I. That's one thing I would not miss is home plate empires missing balls and strikes. I mean, I I, yeah. I, I don't know how they do as well as they do. I can't imagine how hard that is. Um, no, it's extremely difficult. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of players that I've talked with who actually like we, – we, I know you joke about the human element in some of your tweets when an umpire misses a call. But the, the, the batters and the catchers really like talking interacting with the home plate umpire, you could still do that with the electronic strike zone because the guy is still back there. Somebody's got to be there to, you know, to call the tag plays and to put the new baseball into play and to call time and all that. So you wouldn't lose that. But, yeah, I'm with you, and I've been with you on this one. You know, let's give that a go, and if it works, you got to keep it. Well, and I think it's important for the Cubs to know if that's going to come in and when it's going to come in because the electronic strike zone adds a tremendous amount of value to Wilson Contreras because there's nothing to yeah. frame them. 
the ball's going to pass, and it's going to be a ball or a strike, and you don't have to worry about, um, oh, he boxed that one or he pulled it out of the strike zone. That won't matter. And so him being a guy who can throw and a good hitter, it takes away the the one real negative that he has, which it supposedly is uh, pitch framing. There won't be any pitch framing. And then our uh, my best friend, Yadi Molina, his value goes down quite a bit because he doesn't get to steal strikes that are a foot and a half outside um, when there's a bunch of, when there's a series of cameras being the ones to figure out whether it's a ball or a strike. Right, and control pitchers are going to be the same way too. If a guy is getting, and it still happens to this day, if a guy is getting a pitch an inch or two off the plate and, and he needs that to survive and to win in the big leagues, if he's not getting it, that anymore because of the electronic, electronic strike yep. zone, that changes things too for, for, for the pitchers. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'm completely wrong about this. I think a guy like Kyle Hendricks, if he knows exactly what the strike zone is, and he knows exactly where he can, where the outer limit is that he can go and get a strike, he's going to be able to figure out spots in that strike zone that hit that that hitter can't cover, and he's just going to hammer that part of the. Where right now it might be fifty-fifty whether he gets the call or not. So sometimes it works out great, and sometimes he makes a really good pitch and. He doesn't get rewarded for it. Um, guys with guys who don't have as good a stuff and don't have great um, accuracy, I think would be they're going to have a really tough time with it. But I think the guys who are really good, um, they'll be able to just find spots in that strike zone to exploit and know they're going to get. They're automatically going to get a strike. So. Oh, absolutely. You saw it with Maddox. You know, there, there was the Eric Gregg strike zone, and then when they tightened that up, Maddox was still able to thrive because he was the smartest pitcher yeah. in the game and said, okay, you want me to put it here? I'll put it here. So my – I probably shouldn't tell us because I've, I've written it, I think, three different times. But my favorite supposed – my favorite Maddox story was um, in 04, and you, you probably, I'm sure you know this story. In 04, they go to Anaheim to play the Angels. And he gets in like a 2-2 count with Vlad Guerrero, throws him a pitch, doesn't get the call, and is visibly mad on the mound. Get takes the ball, snaps it back from the ump, whatever. And one of you guys asked him after the game why he was so mad, and he said, I've been setting him up for that pitch for six years, and I made it and I didn't get the call. <laughs> and he, you knew he wasn't exaggerating. He literally had yeah. been, you know. I just love that. Yeah, yeah, I do recall that. That was uh, that was vintage Maddox, among other many other things. Yeah, that's a guy that I wish would write a book. Um, because you hear these anecdotal things, like uh, one of his one of his many backup catchers in Atlanta. Um, they were he was shutting out the Astros, and in the ninth inning, he gives up a long home run to Jeff Bagwell, and the and the catcher goes out and basically apologizes to him. He's like, no, that's the pitch I wanted to throw. And he's like, I don't care that he hit it out. He goes, it's better that he hit it out. He said, hitters only remember the stuff they hit. I'll just never throw him that pitch again. And he'll always be looking for it. And, you know, right. what other pitchers actually thought that way, which was, here, hit this as far as you can, and the next time we're in a big spot, I'll know what you're looking for, and you won't get it. So. Yeah, it was funny because we're in Atlanta in 98, the season we talked about a little while ago, and, and Sammy Sosa hit one past Maddox's ear that ended up hitting the backdrop 
beyond the center field wall. I mean, it was a home run, but Maddox made a play on the ball. <laughs> and then we asked him We asked him about it after the game. We went over to the Braves clubhouse, and what did you think of that? He goes, oh, it was cool. <laughs> <sighs> well, I hope we have actual baseball to talk about relatively soon. For two, and for two reasons. Number one, because it's boring that we don't have it. And then number two, because I think assuming it doesn't turn out to be a disaster, it's a sign that things are starting to crawl back to normalcy. Um, so I want to thank you for, Oh, I talked to you for more than an hour. I wasted a good hour of your day. Um, but I really appreciate it and, uh, stay in touch, Bruce. Um, I don't, know if, right. I don't know if you have anything yeah. to plug. I should give you a chance to, to plug something. I don't know if you have anything. Um, no, I got nothing to plug. I say the LoyolaRamblers.com. I'm writing for them. So if you want to check out some of the stories I've done there, but I'm just, you know, hanging at home and, and tr- running with my college swimmer daughter. I'm an old man. She runs faster. I run farther. But uh, just do, like everybody else, just trying to get the damn thing. And like you, you know, the other thing is live sports. It'll help a lot. You know, you can only watch these replays for so long. So and the, the Jordan documentary, I think, is great because it's something new and it gives us a chance to kind of be a community again where we're all talking about the Michael Jordan documentary on Sunday night and again on Monday. So, But, yeah, I think live sports would really help the psyche of things around here. Yeah, I do too. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Bruce, and uh, stay safe. All right, Andy. Talk to you soon. All right.